Our study leader, Dave Wurtson, introduces our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, titled, Giving God's Way, by raising an interesting question. Do we feel about our giving to the living God like we sometimes feel about paying our taxes? And is this the spirit God wants us to have when it comes to opening our wallets? How many of you enjoy paying taxes? Do we have anybody that will volunteer and say that they enjoy paying taxes? In other words, you look forward, just like Christmas, you look forward to April 15th when you can write out that big check to Uncle Sam. They've already gotten a big hunk of your, of your money, right? And sometimes you've gotten that great word from your accountant, you owe a little bit more. And you just get your checkbook out and say, praise God, I'm just so thrilled I can give more money to the government. You go to pennies or you go to Redbird or one of the other stores and you, they have suits on sale for $99. So you get the suit that's a great buy, $99. The girl goes over to the cash register, hits the thing, $107 and about 69 cents, something like that. The 7% tax or 8% and you say, man alive. I thought it was $99, and they added all this stuff. Now, for a long time in my life, I never thought about tax. But when you start, you know, being the father of a family, and you're raising kids, all of those taxes start adding up. Now, I want to share something with you. You need to pay your taxes. I wish I could be like the Lord Jesus and tell you just to go fishing for your taxes. Just go to the Sea of Galilee, catch a fish, open the fish's mouth, and a gold coin will be there, and it'll cover your bill. But the Lord has not promised that in his grace to do that for all of us. So you need to pay your taxes. In fact, Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar, and render unto God the things which are God. But you know what the tragedy that I want to talk to you about today? I believe it's possible that many of you have turned your giving to God into tax. And I want to share with you that I give to my government by obligation. And maybe out of the goodness of my heart, if I didn't have to pay taxes, maybe I would still do it to express my appreciation for the good roads, to show my appreciation for government governing officials, Maybe I would find that in my heart to do it, but I'm not so sure. And I'm not so sure you would either. We give taxes out of obligation, and it's a good obligation. It's a divinely ordained obligation. But I want to talk to you today about giving God's way. And unlike a lot of churches, I didn't just decide because the budget's low, it's time to crank everybody up. I've got to talk to you about giving. This is the neat thing about going through books of the Bible, because none of you can say, well, you know, it's time to get it all cranked up about giving. In fact, if you take that attitude, you're going to miss what I believe the Lord wants to give to you. Because as we study through the book of 1 Corinthians, when we get to chapter 16, look what Paul talks to the Corinthians about. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. We read these words, now about the collection. All preachers like to talk about offering. Paul waited all the way to the end of 1 Corinthians to talk about an offering. And he says these words to the Corinthian church. Now about the collection for the saints. And the NIV translates that for God's people because all born-again believers are the saints. Not just some special elite group, but all of you are saints if you know Christ in a personal way. It's talking about a collection that Paul is taking for these saints. 
Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Galatia was a church over in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And Paul says, I gave instructions to the Galatian church, and I tell all the churches pretty much the same thing. On the first day of every week, that would be Sunday, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections, and there's a, there's a sense here, no hard-nosed fundraising techniques, no uh, pressure, no sense of obligation will be put into this collection when I come. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve. In other words, the Corinthian church was supposed to choose some representatives that could travel with Paul to bring this offering to Jerusalem, which is where this offering is destined. And we will send them with your gift to Jerusalem, and if it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. I want to share with you an idea that maybe is going to be revolutionary for some of you, because some of you from the time you were very young have been taught giving as an obligation. You've been taught giving as a tax. And I want to share that in the Old Testament, giving was a tax. In fact, if you add it up, it comes to about 22-23% of an Old Testament Israelite's income was given to the government, and the government in the Old Testament is a theocracy, so it's all united with the priesthood. It's all united with the temple of Jerusalem. When we come over into the New Testament, we change gears. Jesus will say this, the Gospel of John will say, the law came by Moses, and it was a good law. It was a marvelous law, and there's some specific purposes for that law. But then he says this, grace and truth come from Jesus Christ. Now, grace is a totally different thing from obligation. And I want to talk to you about giving God's way, which is giving by grace. And I want to clear up some of those questions. What should we give to? How should we give? What, are, what should our motivations be in giving? How should these funds be administrated? You want to talk about giving God's way? The first thing I want you to think a little bit about is, what should we contribute to? What are some of the things that we need to contribute to as a group of believers? In 1 Corinthians 16, we're not talking about giving necessarily to church. We're not talking about giving to an organization. The specific need that's raised in 1 Corinthians 16 is relief for needy fellow believers. You see, the Jerusalem church had undergone a series of intense persecutions. And persecution wipes out the money makers. It also puts a group under tremendous economic strength. Also, Jewish people like to go to Jerusalem like Americans like to go to Fort Lauderdale in Florida. If you were a Jew living in the time of Christ in the first century, you would want to go to Jerusalem when you retired. Now what happened was that the girls outlived the fellas, which is still true today for the most part, so these men would die and leave very needy widows. In fact, the first argument in the church took place over meeting the needs of these widows. So the Jerusalem church was a church that underwent terrible persecution, Many of them were scattered. They had a large contingency of very precious godly widows, but they needed material support. To add to that problem, there was a famine. In fact, in Acts chapter 11, Agabus, a prophet in the New Testament, predicted there would be a famine. 
And that's the very first time that we have the Apostle Paul reacting to the needs of fellow believers. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, just before the Jerusalem Council, Paul is talking things over with James and Peter and some of the pillars of the Jerusalem church. And they agree with him about his mission to the Gentiles, and they tell him, but Paul, don't forget the poor. And Paul says, I was very much in favor of remembering legitimate, needy fellow believers. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which we'll be turning to periodically, Paul develops even further the motivations and the necessity for this gift to needy believers in the city of Jerusalem. Romans 15 verse 17 or 27 speaks about the completion of that gift and how all of Paul's plans have come to fruition. And then Galatians 6 tells us this, that we need to be dedicated to everything that's good, do good to all men, and then there's this clause, especially fellow believers. Do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. So the very first thing that I want you to think about when you think about giving is relief for needy fellow believers. I want you to realize that there is legitimate, poor, needy fellow believers. This is a very important idea because there's a conservative element among us that holds if you're poor, you're lazy. Now the book of Proverbs does speak about the lazy individual and you starve him to death. And Paul will even say if you don't work, you don't eat. But it's very important in knowing that truth about a sluggard, which we study in the book of Proverbs, and it's important not to go to the extreme in that side that you don't have a compassionate heart for the legitimate needy that are in the world. Lord, the Lord Jesus said, we'll always have the poor with us. As we live in a fallen world, there will always be catastrophes. There will always be problems materially. And we need to have a compassionate heart for those kinds of needs. And that's why we have this principle. Our hearts and our checkbooks need to respond to the compassion, with compassion to the needs of believers at home and in other countries. And it's very important to understand that you're entering into, into a very biblical thing. I want you to understand that as a group of elders, in order to be biblical, we're very concerned that our church family sense this important imperative of relief for fellow believers. In fact, I believe that the American church right now is being incredibly blessed materially. I want to share with you, there are tremendous challenges that the Lord tarries ahead for us. Now I can share with you from traveling, what I think is hard up is unbelievable prosperity. But all those things are relative. But we have prayed together over lost jobs. We've gone through the agony of the, of the, the fear and the insecurity of where's the next dollar going to come from. That's hard. But I want to share with you as a pastor teacher, in a lot of ways it's good. Because it keeps us on our knees. I think every one of you would say, man, when I've got a desperate need, I pray hard. Isn't that true? What happens when things start to pulsate? When there's money available? We need to understand that if the Lord starts to move in our area and the Lord blesses you as, as men and women, don't forget relief for those in need. Because the Lord is going to bless one area of this church in order to meet needs of other areas. And I want you to see it underlying your thinking that it's a very biblical thing to do. 
And our hearts need to go out with compassion. When we see sickness suck the lifeblood out of a money winner, and we see a family under stress, we need to do it very conscientiously. We need to be careful that we're not abused. But we need to have a heart of compassion. And certainly our church has. And I want to encourage you in that. And I want to lay a biblical foundation underneath that. It's a very biblical thing. The Apostle Paul committed much of his ministry to causing the Gentile believers who were being blessed materially to give to the Jewish believers that were undergoing terrible persecution. And certainly that's a very important biblical responsibility. Another area which is hard for a, a teaching pastor to relate to, but it's in the scripture and I think it's very important. The scripture says that we need to pay honorable wages for those who minister the word of God to us. I was reading in a, in a magazine this week about a guy from about 125 years ago. And at church decided they would pay him $25 a year. Now, back then, that was a lot more money than $25 is now. But their basic thinking was this, that he was a circuit-riding preacher, and he was only able to get around to the church about once every month, which many only made, made it to their congregation 12 times a year. And they did all this mathematics, and they figured out that for, for 12 days during the year, they were paying him $25, which came to almost $2 a Sunday. And that was an exorbitant amount because they could hire farm workers for 50 cents. So they voted to lower his pay to $12 a year instead of keeping it up at the exorbitant amount of $25. And basically the idea is, you know, you keep them poor, you keep them holy. And what I want you to realize is that in our day, there's been tremendous abuse and what I want to share with you is very important. I think it's very possible to sell the scripture and to sell Christ for financial gain. And many do that. But even though that happens, it's important for us to remember that 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 12 says. Let's look at that verse. It's a verse that we studied when we did the pastoral epistles, but it relates to this area of salaries for those that are teaching the word. 1 Timothy chapter 5 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. The elders, now it says the elders, those recognized as being father figures in the church who direct the affairs of the church well, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. I want you to see that in Paul's instruction to the Ephesian church that there was a group of elders that administrated the practical management affairs of the church. Then there was a special group that had the primary responsibility of teaching the word. And he says that we need to express double honor, and then he gives us some idea of what might be involved in that. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. And he uses two illustrations. He unites a word that Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke with a word from Moses in the Old Testament. What it's saying is that if you have an ox who is treading out the grain. You've gathered together the raw wheat, the raw barley. You have it on the treadmill, and you have it on the grinding stone. And the oxen is pulling that grinding stone and crushing that grain to process it. What it's saying is if you've got an ox who's treading out the grain like that, don't muzzle him. Let him eat so he'll be strong. 
And once again, as I share this with our church family, over the years, our church family has been very gracious in this area. And one thing I want to say about that, if I stop treading out the grain, if Dave Lowry stops treading out the grain, as far as teaching us the Word of God, teaching in Awana, teaching in Sunday school classes coming up, teaching your junior high kids the Holy Scriptures, the best way to deal with that is just cut their salary, cut mine. This text is not telling you that you owe it to us to support a religious class of clerics. Do you understand what I mean by that? The Bible's not telling you that you have an obligation to support a class of clergymen. In fact, that's been a great curse upon the church. In fact, in the European church, the church is supported by taxes. Unbelievers have to give money, for example, in Austria. In Austria, you have to give money to the ordained Roman Catholic Church, which is the official church of Austria. Some of your money goes just the way you pay income tax. Or if you're a Lutheran, you have to pay it to the Lutheran church. The ordained government churches are supported by tax. Now, pastors love that because it frees them from the responsibility of immediate relationship and immediate accountability. But I can show you again and again in the New Testament that it will tell us that we're under an obligation to support those who feed us spiritually. But if they don't feed us spiritually and they're not teaching us the Word, we're not under obligation to do that. And I think that would be a great way to keep liberalism from creeping into the church. Because a lot of guys would start teaching the Scripture again if their livelihood depended upon it. And so that's another thing that's very important we need to give to needy fellow believers. We also need to honor those who teach us the Word of God. We honor them by not muzzling those that are teaching the Word to us. Pray that the Lord will help us in that area. That the Lord will help us to always teach the Word. And that we'll always have a loving response. So never turn it into an obligation. In fact, I would really share with you that if you feel that the church, uh, that religion is just an obligatory thing, if you think that I have a very easy job and that I'm well overpaid, that all I have to do is teach once a week, and man, who wouldn't want a job like that? Please don't give anything. If that's your idea of what the ministry is, then don't give, because it would be tragic to give under those kind of circumstances. But if the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart, and he's using the power of the, of the reality of the Word of God in your heart. Then we respond. It kind of bubbles up within us. And that's a privilege that I have a part in too, to be able to share with those that are teaching me and ministering to my needs. A third area that's very specific in the Scripture, we need to support foreign missionaries. We need to support missionaries that are ministering across cultural groups. Philippians chapter 4, verse 17, when we study the book of Philippians together, the Apostle Paul spoke about how thrilled he was that the Thessalonians, the Macedonians, responded to his need. In fact, he says that early in his ministry, on the second missionary journey, they were the only ones that met his need in that regard. The Apostle Paul wouldn't let the Corinthians give to his need because they didn't have a good attitude about it. They were uptight with him, and they felt it was an obligation. They felt they could control the Apostle Paul a little bit by the way they gave to him. So the Apostle Paul said, no, I won't take any funds from you. But the Thessalonians and the Philippians were a, a joyous, gracious, very loving children in, in the Lord. And they met Paul's needs. I think one of the major reasons that God has blessed our church down through the years 
is because from the very beginning, when Ed and Corky felt the pull of the Holy Spirit, even though they were your teachers, even though they were the ones that were used to get the church started, you all said, the Holy Spirit's telling them to go. We got to send them. And you gave. We're going to face that again. We're going to have to respond and to give. And the Lord has always enabled us to do that in the past because we're serious about the desire to reach people with the gospel of Christ. So let's begin to pray about some of those things. Let's rejoice in that. And I would say this. Don't ever let Satan turn those kinds of needs into guilt, into feelings of what can I do? Not any individual can do everything. The Lord says he wants us to do something, and what he wants us to do, he wants us to do with graciousness and with joy. One of the biggest kicks in life is to give because you want to, because of the joy of your heart. And that leads us into the next thing I want to share a little bit about. What should be our motivations in giving? What should happen inside of our heart when we're giving? One of the things that we want to get across to you, we want you to feel it very, very deeply, is that whatever you do in giving, you do it because of grace. You do it because of unmerited favor to those that deserve just the opposite, not out of a sense of tax, not out of a sense of obligation. Paul in 1 Corinthians 16.3, the verse that we looked at, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It's very interesting. The Apostle Paul even calls the gift to Jerusalem grace. He says this, Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. Now, you would miss that because the English says gift, but the word there is, I will send them with your grace to Jerusalem. Now, what does that mean? Paul is telling the Corinthians, you don't have to give. You know, you don't have to give anything to this thing. If you've decided to do it and you've promised that you'll do it, it's very important that you do it, but you don't decide to do it because somebody says, you've got to do that. It's an obligation. This whole thing is going to go into the tank if you don't. That's not at all what Paul is saying. He's saying the very definition of what's happening is grace. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. There's an incredible church that uses the testimony of this principle of grace in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It says about the, the Macedonian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and following. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. For I testify that as they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. No fundraising technique, no promises like in the bottom of a, of a cereal box, just totally on their own. They urgently pleaded with us. The preachers didn't urgently plead, but the givers urgently pleaded. They urgently pleaded with us about the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do it as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. This is an incredible thing. And it's what I'm praying will happen more and more among our body of believers. The Macedonian believers heard the gospel of Christ. The Macedonian vision said, come over and help us. The Apostle Paul came over and told them that a gracious God sent his son as an unmerited gracious gift. And the Macedonians were born again into God's family. And they rejoiced in this gift. 
You see, the Macedonians knew what it was like to be enslaved in sin, in bondage to, to destruction and death, and someone come and say, it's totally free. You can be forgiven. Now, what happens when you experience grace? You see, when you experience grace, it wells up from deep inside. You just want to share. And I think the Apostle Paul just casually mentioned that he was conducting a, a, a collection for needy saints in Jerusalem. And I can just see it start to go through the church family, gossiping about the offering about Jerusalem. And what were they doing? They were saying, man, will the Apostle Paul let us in on that? Can we give to help out with that? And their representatives come and say, Paul, we want to give. And the missionary says, Paul says, no, you guys are too poor. Man alive, you know, you're barely scraping it yourself. How in the world could you ever give? They say, because God's given so much to us, we want to do something. It's incredible. You know, it's like a group among the Chavantes that I heard about. The Chavante Indians in Brazil are sending missionaries out into the jungle. And they don't need money when they go to the jungle. They need grain and food, and they need, you know, a sustenance. And when my friend was among the Chavantes, he noticed they were in a severe time of stress. Many of them were hungry, just barely making it. And yet he saw a barn that was just filled with all kinds of grain. And my friend said, why don't you use that grain? Why don't you use that? It could meet a lot of your needs. They said, no, that's our missionary supply. That's what we give to our messengers that go out to reach other tribes. That's the Macedonians. No one told them they had to do it. In fact, you can't generate that kind of, of drive and that kind of joy and that kind of enthusiasm. But I want to share with you, if you've ever started to get a part of it, you'll never get over it. Giving by grace. Don't ever, please don't ever do anything. I, you know, one of the things that burdens me so much is all the way from your friendships to your relationships at work. You know, some of you are all in to fairness and justice. And I just want to just tell you, if you're into giving out of obligation, if you're, out of, if you're into giving because you have to, it's kind of a law, you know, you're supposed to tithe, you've got to give the tax. If you're into having friendships, you know, they give you a meal, you give them a meal. All of us, I just want to share with you from the depths of my heart, that's the way I live naturally. I'll confess. I'm really into justice. I can even keep track of how many potatoes somebody eats if, I'm, if I really get into that side of my nature. When I go to your house, you give an equivalent meal that we gave to you. And our friendship will really be super if you give me equivalent meals or equivalent entertainment. In fact, some of your friendships have completely broken down, and so have mine at times, because we're into fairness. Paul's saying, hey, brothers and sisters, escape from fairness. Escape from justice. You know, it's really neat when you just give. And someone says, why did you do that? They haven't done anything for you and say, that's exactly right. Why did you give? I wanted to. It's just so neat to give. It's so neat to emulate the work of my Lord, to be gracious like him. So we need to give out of grace. The example of Christ. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, that we might become rich in him. That's the principle. We respond to the Savior. He's done so much for us. He became poor for us. So we respond to that gift 
by being gracious to others. It's a totally different mindset. I'm talking to you about a totally different way of life. If you live for justice, if you live for fairness, you're going to get hurt. You're going to go in and out of relationships, in and out of churches, in and out, sometimes giving a lot, sometimes not giving any. And tragically, you'll miss that great, the greatest joy in all of life to receive grace and to respond in grace. So give out of grace. Second law, we need to mutually share. In 2 Corinthians 8, 13 through 15, the Apostle Paul says, I don't want any of you to be in want. He says, I don't want you, Corinthians, to give to meet the needs of those in Jerusalem so that you'll be in terrible want and the Jerusalemites will be living in, in posh luxury. He talks about a tremendous principle in the family of God. God will raise up one group of prosperity so that the other group can meet the needs of the poor. Some of you will lose your jobs in our family. At that time, the Lord will raise up other people in our family that have really good jobs, and they're going to be sharing. Then the Lord will turn all the tables, and somebody that didn't have a job will get a job, and they'll begin to prosper, and then the other person will lose it. You see, this is what we get into. Our pride blocks us from receiving and giving. The Lord wants to break that all down. I think the Lord is raising up the American church, blessing it, giving it a lot of prosperity to give to those in the third world that are not under that kind of blessing. Why? Because it generates tremendous mutual sharing. It protects us from material gluttony, and it protects them from material famine. And oh, how we need to enter into that. Thirdly, we need to give because it will generate thanksgiving to God. The amazing thing is when someone gives out of grace, the person doesn't necessarily thank you, but they thank the Lord God of heaven. It reminds them of that un unspeakable gift. And some of the greatest joys come among believers in this mutual sharing and the thanksgiving that it presents to God. Just a couple other things and I'll throw it open for question. How should we give? In the passage that I read to you, Paul said, lay aside on the first day of the week. I would challenge you to give systematically. Give systematically. It's a good rule of thumb to lay up on the first day of the week. You decide objectively. Get your checkbook out and decide how you're going to honor the Lord, how you're going to show grace. Do it systematically. Second of all, do it privately. Do it privately. That's one of the reasons why... In our church family, we just leave the plates where they are because it makes you, if someone's going to give, they don't just have a plate, go whip and buy them. Oh, I get another dollar out. Flip it in there. That's public. It's unplanned. It's not systematic. Somebody will think, man, I give hundreds of dollars to the church. You don't have any idea what you give. Nobody should have any idea how you give except you. But the scripture says do it systematically, regularly. You decide. Do it privately. The fact the Lord says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. It. You say, how much should I give? That's the big one. Should I give 10%? Should I give 15%? Should I give 25%? I don't know what percent you should give. The New Testament never tells you. The law does. You have to give about 23%. You can figure, you know, your government tax, so you'll come out maybe around 10%. But that's going to turn into the law. You know what Paul told the Corinthians? He says, you decide how much you're going to give according to how the Lord prospered you that week. You ask me, like, how much should you give? I think that on a systematic basis, privately, as a husband and a wife with your finances, you should decide what can we give. And you should do it in accordance as the Lord has prospered you. It says, according to your productivity of that week. 2 Corinthians 8.12 says, according to what we have, have, not what we don't have. 
Some of you have been in church situations where they tell you to mortgage your homes, to go out and get loans from the banks, to take care of the church's needs. That's crazy. You're supposed to give according to what you have, not according, not according to what you don't have. You don't give to the Lord what you don't have. You give according to what you have. And that makes sense. And there's great joy in that. It says each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. I'm often reminded of Gideon. Remember when the Lord had a great war to win against the Midianites? And he collected thousands of soldiers. And Gideon's all excited. Man, we got thousands of soldiers. Man, we're going to really do it. The Lord says, no, you got too many guys. Go down to the river. And the guys get flat on their belly and lap it all up. Don't take any of them. Also, by the way, send everybody away that doesn't really want to go and fight. If someone's uptight, if they're afraid, they're really not into this thing, then tell them not to fight. I want to share all of you. Don't serve the Lord because you have to. Don't give money. Don't do anything for the Lord because you feel that you just got to do it. Because that mentality is so, so mixed up. It starts to communicate. The Lord is hard up. Some of you as business people might be saying, oh, man, we got to really help God out again. The Lord's not hard up. The banks of Dallas are hard up. I don't believe that the Lord God of heaven is hard up at all today. So don't ever give because you think you're going to help him out. You see, you need to give yourself first to the Lord, and then you can give yourself to others. And each one should do it as he decides freely in his own heart with a great sense of cheerfulness. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. In light of what I've shared with you today, you can understand why he does. Just one final thing. Paul had representatives go with him. And the reason he did that is it was good first century business ethical accountability. I want to share with you something. I am incredibly amazed at the business men and women that have very precise accounting in their businesses. They have double checking, you know, double signatures on checks. No one person controls all the finances. They'll come to church on Sunday morning, and for the life of me, I cannot figure out how some churches can put all that money into the pastor's hands, never ask any questions about it, let, let him control everything. That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. It's totally unethical. And I want to share with you, don't ever do that kind of giving. I wouldn't trust myself for five minutes with that kind of power, with that kind of authority. I want to share with you something. I don't know what any of you give. I really mean that. I don't want to know. I don't want to walk into a hospital room and say, well, this is a big giver. Let's really meet his need. This person doesn't give anything. We'll have a shorter prayer. That's horrible. That makes me sick to my stomach, but it's a reality. You see, if I know that I've got a flesh... If I know that, I try to do that with my friendships. I try to have friendships with the rich and with the poor. And I want you to know, like, I'm just like all of you. Don't put me up there somewhere. Please don't do that. And I want to share with all of you that it means just as much. It's some of you that, that don't have a lot of things materially that have taught me the most about life. I would say to you, I'm thankful for just the person that doesn't have a whole lot. Because you've taught me the right priorities. You've taught me a whole lot of what it means to be close to God. Don't ever take that away from me. Because we're brothers and sisters. And that's why I don't want to know what anybody does materially. 
We also have very careful accountability. Why? Because we need to do what's right before God and before men. So that's it. You need to give by grace, and you need to give freely. It's not a tax. It's a joyous obligation. Let me just throw it open. What you brought up about seed faith. A lot of you are going to hear about seed faith. And seed faith comes out of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And the principle there is not like you give $10 to me and I'll promise you that in four or five months the Lord will cause your seed to grow and you'll have a harvest of $50. It's kind of like giving to the stock market. That's not at all what Paul has in mind. What he's saying is that the seed and the harvest illustrates the principle of grace. God gives a whole lot more harvest then you plant seeds. And if you throw a lot of seeds out, you get a big harvest. And what he's saying is re-emphasizing live by grace. Live positively by grace. But it's, it's not saying at all that the Lord, you put in $10 in the Midlothian Bible Church or give to this evangelist and you're going to get $100 back. What he's saying is that if you live by grace and you love the Lord, that there's going to be a harvest. And Paul even mentions a harvest of righteousness. For example, in Paul's life, he gave very generously and ended up with his head cut off in a Roman prison. But I think all of us, if we think of the eternal throne room of heaven, we'll trade places with him. So the harvest of righteousness, of godliness that comes from planting seeds of grace is what's really being talked about. To change that into a, a stock market scheme, the stock market's fine in the business world. But to make God, you know, kind of a, a supernatural Wall Street I think is a real sad thing. And I think these verses will help with that. Okay, Claude's question is about the, the radio media preacher that's asking to give the tithe to them and not to the local church. What I would say is this. I really don't believe that there needs to be a competition between the legitimate, godly, strong Bible teaching ministry and the local church. And I'll just give some specific examples like Chuck Swindoll. If Chuck ministers to your heart, I would really challenge anybody to respond to that need. Because Chuck's my brother. He's a fellow teacher. We are the universal body of Christ. And John MacArthur out in California, the radio Bible class. I grew up with Dr. DeHaan, the founder of the radio Bible classes. Those ministries, I just name a few of them, are teaching the scripture. And I would evaluate the same way that I've shared here. If the Lord uses somebody biblically in your life, then you need to respond to them. It says, let the one who receives teaching share every good thing. And I personally don't sense any competition with the media church versus the, versus the biblical local church. What I would say is this. I would caution you with that is, if you start to move towards the media church and away from the local church, I'm concerned for you because you're going to miss out on the flesh and blood human relationships. And those that are really biblical media preachers will agree with that, and they'll never want to take you away from your local family of believers. So personally, I would say that, you know, I don't think that the New Testament sets up a big dichotomy about give to the local church, be sure your tithe goes there. In fact, I really don't even think that tithing is a New Testament principle of grace. I think you need to give according to the way the Lord has prospered. Some of you, because the Lord's prospered, you can do a whole lot more than a tithe. Some of you won't be able to do as much. That'll change as your life grows and develops. And so I don't like that whole legal kind of an idea. But I would, you know, in other words, it's an Old Testament idea to bring your money to the storehouse. And that was very important in the Old Testament. But this is not the temple. Midlothian Bible Church isn't the temple. The body of Christ, your body, and all believers everywhere are the temple. And I believe the Lord will move us by grace to meet needs throughout that family of believers. Frank, go ahead.
Frank's raising the issue about our, and we'll end with this, with our accountability of who we give to, and this relates to, to Pat's question as well. John, in the epistle of John, it talks about teachers that are among them, some of them traveling preachers, some of them within probably the Ephesian church that were false teachers. The apostle John will say not only not to give to them, but he says don't even wish them Godspeed. Don't even have them in your home and express fellowship with them. And that goes back to the first point that I raised when I talked about honoring those that teach you. It tells us throughout the Word of God, if someone is not teaching you biblically based upon the revealed Holy Scripture, if they are a false teacher, don't ever give when you don't know whether or not they really are biblical. And we'll help you with that. If you have questions about something, come and ask us about it. Pat almost talked about, well, I ought to give, you know, this friend says, I ought to give because I know some of it's a con, I know some of it's false teaching, but just think of the other good that comes. It's almost like rubbing a rabbit's foot. If I, I can cover all the bases. Lots of believers give that way. In other words, we need to keep the church going because I know it's not true, maybe the teaching is inaccurate, maybe it's not biblical, but after all, maybe God will be in that. Don't ever do that. I, I want you to feel free to interact with us about what we share from the Word. Is it biblical? There needs to be a, a real spirit of grace in that. But if I ever stop teaching you from the Word, cut me off. And that's what Frank is alluding to. Don't wish me Godspeed. Now, in our age of relativity, it's hard to talk like that because we all have an idea that all religion's good, that what I teach is the same as what everybody else is teaching. And I just want to share that's just not the case. It doesn't mean that I hate those people. It means that I really pray for them. But don't fall into the trap of thinking that everybody teaches the same. They don't. You need to read the Word of God. I'll close with this. The only way you can have that kind of discernment is for you to get into the Word of God for yourself. If your Bible is opened on Sunday morning and that's all, then you're going to be duped. Your money is going to be stolen from you. You're going to give to false causes. One day you'll stand before the Lord and you'll give an account and the Lord will shake his head. You had no discernment. You had no real insight in your giving. You just gave. And I'll say, why didn't you spend some time in my holy word so that I could help you to grow, that I could set you free? You need to do that not out of an obligation, but out of a sense of the joyous grace. We have a book. It's right here. We have a book right here that tells us the truth. And this is the revelation that will set us free. And we need to give to those teachers that are gifted by the Spirit of God that make this book come alive to us. Teachers that teach against this book or contrary to this book, we have no obligation to them.